Hey, welcome to the Sanctuary Church podcast. Sanctuary Church is a family following the path of Jesus together in Providence, Rhode Island. If you'd like to learn more about our community, you can visit our website at sanctuaryri.org or check us out on social media. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope you are encouraged by today's teaching. We're going to read the word uh, from Philippians 4. We've been a series on uh, joy, simply called it the art of joy. Uh, this is a theme that comes up in this book that Paul writes to the church in a city called Philippi that's going through some conflict. Uh, and I'm really excited today. We've had a host, we do this often in the summer, of guest teachers, um, both from in our house and outside it. Uh, and today, uh, before I read the word, I just want to get y'all excited. Today, um, Brittany Morose is going to be coming with the word today. Yes. Um, and I, I have had the, the distinct pleasure of getting a little preview of the word today and um, walking through it. And it is uh, going to be a gift to us. I won't raise the raise the expectation too high. Middle, just right in the middle. It's going to be dead average. (laughs) Friends, hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in in this way, dear friends. In verse 4, we read, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Morning, church. Hey. Yeah, that's great. Thank you. It's funny to me, as I'm talking about this passage that says, do not be anxious, I get here, I'm all calmed up, like deep breathing, all these things I get here, and I apparently did not send my slides through. And so if anyone knows me at all that would typically just send me into this spiral of anxiety. And so I think the Lord is wanting to teach me, as I teach you today, um, to to not rest in that. Um, And so this is the word we have for us today is do not be anxious. And I was really honored when Andrew asked me to preach on this topic um, for a few reasons. One, it's something I encounter daily in my office as a therapist. This idea of finding joy in the midst of our suffering, of working through suffering and honoring it well, and what does it look like to find all these things together. But it's also something that the Lord has very graciously and personally walked me through, is walking me through, and has used to bring healing in my life, to bring me closer to him, and to continue this work he started in me of making me more and more like him. And so I wanted to start today by sharing just some of, a little bit of my story that's relevant to to this passage. And so 
I grew up in a loving home, a Christian home. I remember going to church multiple times a week. I loved it there. I loved Jesus. I don't remember a time in my life where I didn't love Jesus. And I remember some very, a few key like liminal moments in my youth, especially where I sensed Jesus's presence with me, like in a very tangible bodily way. And looking back now, I see how the Lord used that to help me walk through some painful things in my life. But really, I didn't see that then. I just felt like I'm a really happy kid. I was very social. I was pretty confident. I did well in school, all these good things. So I had this very happy life. Yet, as for many of us, as many of us do, I also had quite a bit of upheaval and uncertainty in my life from many things, but things like being a military kid where we moved around every few years and I had to start over with a new community and new friends to seeing my family members, many of my family members suffer through intense and really chronic health challenges. So as a young child, I experienced the loss of several dear like loved ones, some family members, and all of this really culminating in um, when I was 16 years old and one of my dear friends died. Um, and that was, that was a really intense moment for me in my life. And these things all impacted me very significantly, yet I share that because I never really understood at the time how it impacted me. I knew that this was painful and this was hard, and then I pretty quickly moved on to, it's all right, God's working this all for good, it'll be fine. And I really never knew how to make sense of or truly metabolize my pain. So I had this rosy view of my life, and I looked at all of my experiences as wonderful and good and part of God's good plan, and I've realized since that the story I was telling myself about those those hard things, those painful things that happened was that it was okay. It was all good because God's working it for good. And like, I wanna be very clear, theologically that wasn't wrong, okay? Theologically wasn't necessarily wrong. And in some ways it was a merciful gift that God gave me to grasp onto in the midst of things that were very confusing for me as a kid, things that were uncertain and unpredictable and unstable. But I now know that there was another story that was woven into my narrative in addition to that truth that all things will work out for good. And that story, that story was that though I did not stay with those things and I wanted to just kind of push through them and move, jump to the next thing, I didn't stay with those things, but they stayed with me. And so I really was also an anxious kid. I was uncertain, I was insecure. And those qualities were just as true about me as my joyfulness and my, my confidence, but I largely refused to acknowledge them. My body though revealed the whole truth before I had words to understand it because ever since I was a young kid, I would get stomach aches, headaches, insomnia, chronic fatigue. I would get ulcers in my mouth when I got really stressed, like it was pretty intense. Um, and it was, and my parents knew this, they saw this, but for me, it wasn't until my adulthood that I realized that I truly came to terms with how much unacknowledged stress and anxiety and really grief had accumulated in my body and leaked out through these physical symptoms because it had nowhere else to go. See, I was the type of kid who would read verses like, do not be anxious in Philippians 4, 
and take that as a command or even like a challenge to avoid that experience through brute mental force. Any, I hear some amens. Anyone else relate to that? Yeah, okay. It's like there is this belief that I have to just stop it, just switch off that anxiety. And I had an impulse to hide and avoid my pain until it was made good, to not let you know that I was anxious about the slides not going through. I wanted to wait until the suffering was relieved, the anxiety subsided, and the product was perfected before I could present it to anyone else. And so I didn't share what I was struggling with. I didn't reach out for help. I was not the type of person that came up for prayer on a Sunday morning. And it left me exhausted, stressed, insecure. Certainly not a picture of this like celebratory joy that Paul invites us into. And from your responses, I see I'm not alone in that experience, right? So when we're faced with suffering, this is what I want to talk about today. When we're faced with suffering, we're tempted to take one of two paths. We might either give in to and wallow in the grief or the anxiety, or we're tempted to avoid it and deny it. And last week, Lyle spoke to us really about that first tendency, and, and he exhorted us towards pursuing beauty and gladness in the face of despair, I want to address the other tendency, that avoidance of the pain, the temptation to bypass our pain in order to get to the good stuff. So to borrow some Easter language that I hear from Andrew often, we want, when we're in those times, we want to skip Friday to get to Sunday, right? So if there's one thing that I want you to take away from today, if, if you tune out the rest of the time, and I hope you don't, but if you do, it's this. When we are present to our pain, and when we experience Christ's presence with us, then we can become free to be present to joy. Okay? Oh, they're here. When we are present to our pain, and we experience Christ's presence with us while we're in it, then we can become freed to be present to the joy that is around us. Okay, in this collection of talks, we've been learning along with Paul how to cultivate Christ-like joy in the midst of all circumstances. As a quick recap, Paul is in prison as he's writing, and he's writing this letter to the persecuted church in Philippi, folks that he calls his co-workers in the faith. They have this strong connection. And while Paul's in prison, they've sent their friend Epaphroditus to bring a care package to Paul, to minister to him, to support him. And so he sends this letter to thank them. Along with his thanks, he also gives them several unique encouragements, kind of scattered, not all necessarily connected, but these encouragements based on some challenges that they were facing. And they're all broken into different vignettes. One of those vignettes is in Philippians 4, where we are today. All of these vignettes, though separate, hinge on the main point of the book, which is described in chapter 2, through a poem about Jesus' death. Now, side note, that poem is just about his death. It's not even about his death and then resurrection. It's about the part where Jesus suffers. And that's what Paul bases this whole entire book on. The poem talks about how Jesus gave up his position of equality with God. He humbled himself. Um, he chose to join our mess and our muck to enter into our pain and suffering and ultimately choosing to give up his life so that we can be united again with God the Father and rest in that assurance for the rest of our lives. Okay, and so all of the encouragements that are given in the book of Philippians are then predicated on that truth about who Jesus is 
and what he does in the face of suffering. Tim Mackey says that Paul is telling the church at Philippi that living as a Christian means seeing your own story as an expression of Jesus's story. And Paul, that's how he sees his suffering. That's how he views his life. In chapter one, he talks about his way of participating in Jesus's story, which is to continue suffering, continue preaching the gospel, even though it meant persecution for him in order that others might know about Christ. And this is what Greg spoke to, is finding that purpose in the midst of our suffering that is like a root for our joy, where it can take root. So Paul explains all of this, and then he urges the rest of the church to also participate in Jesus's story by taking up the same mindset that Jesus had in suffering. And this is where we look in Philippians 4, is what was Jesus's mindset in the face of his suffering how do we then take that and apply that to our lives? So Philippians 4, verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything. Jesus says the same thing in Matthew 6, 25 through 34, where he tells us, don't worry about your food. Don't worry about your clothes. Don't worry about what is to come tomorrow. And this is a common refrain throughout scripture. We, we hear it often, do not be anxious, do not be anxious. Cast all your anxieties on him for he cares for you. And I wanna pause there and invite you to check in with yourself when you read those things, when you hear those words, what's the tone that it plays through in your mind? Because I believe that the tone is intended to be one of reassurance and comfort, like a parent who is comforting their young child who's afraid of the dark. Just last night, I helped my daughter. I was scanning the room to make sure there's no dinosaurs hiding and lying in wait. And I'm searching through, I'm demonstrating safety, and I'm telling her, see, it's safe. I'm here with you. I'm here with you. You don't have to worry. Right? That's the tone that this is written in, and yet something funny happens to us sometimes when we read this. And we read these passages less like a comfort and more like a condemnation. Just stop being anxious. We hear it like a parent scolding us for worrying in the first place. And when we read it in that way, we miss. It's like everything else shuts down and we miss the beauty that that passage has to hold for us. We may find ourselves doing anything we can then to avoid the certain circumstances that cause us to feel anxious or worried, or any other emotion that we've deemed as somehow negative, bad, or unpleasant. So in our attempts to cope with our pain and our suffering, while somehow simultaneously trying to honor what we think the scriptures are teaching us, many of us find ourselves engaging in this process called spiritual bypassing. Is anyone here familiar with that term? A little bit? Yep. So... Spiritual bypassing is a term that was coined in the 1980s by psychologist John Wellwood, and one author succinctly described it as the tendency to turn away from what is difficult, painful, or unpleasant, and to use spiritual ideas or beliefs to avoid the pain of facing these circumstances. Okay, it's when we avoid the unpleasant things and we use our scripture to do it to avoid the pain that we know will come if we were to face it head on. It's like the religious or spiritual cousin of toxic positivity. 
right? Just be happy, think positive thoughts, good vibes only, which is like a particular pet peeve phrase of mine, um, but I digress. In spiritual bypass, it might look like, well, you, you just got to pray a little more, have a little bit more faith. And when it's really weaponized against us, it comes out like, I'm anxious because I don't have enough faith. Okay. And Adam Grant in that New York Times um, article where he talks about languishing that Andrew kicked off this series about, he talks about this concept of toxic positivity, of spiritual bypass, and how it's this like kind of quintessentially American pressure to feel upbeat all the time. Amanda Held Opel in her new book, Holy and Happiness, termed this sort of Christian pain avoidance as the emotional prosperity gospel. Right, that kind of like hits you a bit. The belief that happiness and spiritual euphoria will inevitably follow if you believe all the right things and make all the right choices. And that's where we find ourselves bypassing uh, what, what is really going on. And by the way, it's not only in the big crises or sufferings where we might find ourselves bypassing. Even as we experience disappointments, rejections, uncertainty, that languishing, like dwindling of delight, and instead of providing actual comfort or even helping us work through these difficult, unpleasant emotions, or let alone inviting us into the celebratory joy that Paul promises us in Philippians, this spiritual bypassing simply aims to ease the discomfort of our pain. And the truth is many of us are not well equipped to know what to do with our unpleasant emotions. We struggle to be honest about what we're feeling with ourselves let alone with others, let alone with a prayer team, let alone with God. And really, like I say this in all compassion because we're usually not even aware we're doing it, that we're acting out of avoidance. We're just doing the best we can to rush past these things that I don't know what to do with in order to be faithful in the midst of our trials. And so please hear me. It's not that prayer or turning to the scriptures is is um, problematic by no means. It's in fact our tendency to misuse these resources that can be problematic. By necessity, spiritual bypass requires us to avoid or deny the reality of our response in the moment. So if we call it what it is, it's just dishonest. It's dishonest and it's also short-lived. We may find immediate relief from brushing things under the rug, kicking things down, uh, kicking the can down the road. And yet it doesn't actually go away. It just keeps building. It keeps accumulating and it's going to leak out somewhere in the way that we talk to our spouse, in the way that we treat a server at the restaurant, in physical symptoms like I experienced, in nightmares, panic attacks, irritability and apathy. You know, I think oftentimes that sense of like languishing and coasting is actually the result of our bypassing when we're avoiding whatever it is underneath that's blocking us from joy. Because if we numb ourselves to the bad, we're also numbing ourselves to the good, okay? So spiritual bypassing is like using Tylenol when you've broken your arm and expecting to get better, okay? It might ease the discomfort of your pain. It might distract you for a while. It might be an actually important part of triaging, but it's not what's going to help you get better. What a broken bone needs is to be reset. And that's painful. I've had a broken bone reset. It's incredibly painful. It's aversive, it's unpleasant. We don't wanna do that. 
And yet in using scripture to avoid our unpleasant emotions, we're taking God's words and we're treating it like Tylenol to numb our pain when it was meant to treat the wound. Okay, when we pluck out portions of these beautifully redemptive passages of scripture and we plaster them as a happy face over our pain, we not only misuse God's word, but we also miss the whole redeeming narrative arc of scripture, which is that we have a God who loves us so much that he stepped out of heaven to join into our pain. That he took upon himself our suffering even to the point of death so that we might be healed, made whole, renewed, redeemed, and never living without his presence again for the rest of eternity. Amen. Our God draws near to us. He meets us where we are. He enters our suffering and we can't bypass the cross and then expect the redemption. God doesn't want to be our painkiller. He wants to actually treat the wound. Okay, God doesn't want to be your painkiller, friend. He wants to actually heal you. So if we're guaranteed to experience suffering in this life, one quick look around our world tells us that. And God isn't asking us to ignore it or switch it off through spiritual bypass, then what is the path to joy? Because so far this feels pretty bleak. <laughs> All right. We're done. We're just going to go sit in the pain. How do we get to joy? And I'd like to suggest, and I think what Paul suggests, is that we find the path of joy through something that I've come to call sacred presence. The alternative to spiritual bypass is the sacred presence when we can be present in the pain and present to the joys around us because Christ is present with us in all of it. Okay, therapist and author Andy Colbert puts it this way. She says, the opposite of spiritual bypass is just turning towards reality and knowing that God will meet us there too. So being present to pain is turning your eyes toward reality. So let's go back to Philippians 4, 5, and 6 with that context in mind. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything. Paul's not advocating that we bypass anxiety here. And in case you were wondering, Paul is not some superhuman free of anxiety while he's sitting here rotting in prison. Um, he, he speaks just a couple chapters earlier about his grief over Epaphroditus, that friend who came with the care package and a minister to him. Epaphroditus became very sick. Even, he nearly died while he was there. And Paul speaks of his sorrows over his friend. And he said, the Lord mercifully healed him in, and in doing so healed him, but also spared me from my anxiety, right? Paul confesses that he is anxiety and then turns around and tells us, don't be anxious, right? And, and, and more so when we go back to chapter two, right? That poem on which the whole book hangs, Paul gives us Christ's example of suffering as this ultimate picture of what we're supposed to do when we feel anxious, but we don't need to feel anxious. And so if we are to participate in Christ's example of suffering, I, I think what Paul's encouraging, is encouraging us towards here is that we need to participate in the entirety of Christ's example. It's not just about experiencing parallel circumstances because that's just kind of guaranteed for all people on this earth. Not necessarily to the point of being hung on a cross, but we are guaranteed to participate in suffering. And so what is it that... Paul wants us to participate in, it's Jesus's response to his suffering. Okay, and we find that outlined, I think, most, um, most clearly 
in Matthew 26 and Luke 22, these accounts of Jesus spending time in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before his crucifixion. And so in these passages, we see Jesus going to the garden with a few disciples with the intention to pray because he knew what was coming the next day. In the book of Matthew, it says that as he went, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. It's swelling. It's starting. And then he told his friends that it's increasing. Jesus says, I'm feeling overwhelmed by sorrow, oh, even to the point of death, that the sorrow was so overwhelming to him before he even gets to the cross, right? Jesus then pleads with God multiple times to change his mind and to choose another way. And Luke says at that point, being in such anguish, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. So notice a few things here. First, Jesus is actually asking God to bypass the cross, right? He's asking, can we find any other way? Could we find any other way? But he doesn't then take it and avoid the pain. He doesn't then go to, okay, well, it's going to be all right because I know it's all going to work out for good. He just accepts it. I don't want this. It's going to be terrible, and I can face that. He accepts the reality in front of him, and he invites the Father into it with him. As Hebrews 4.15 says, We do not have a high priest unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just like we are, even tempted to bypass, and yet he did not sin. As I read this passage, I just imagine Jesus burying his head into his father's shoulders, sobbing, knowing what was to come, but humbling himself in obedience anyway, casting his anxieties before the feet of the Lord. And in so doing, he received the father's love and comfort. And so friends of Jesus, with his fully formed theology and his knowledge of the coming redemption and all that it would mean, if he still experienced and expressed his grief and anxiety of how he was going to get there, shouldn't we also be freed to do this? And might it even be an important part of how we move through it? Okay? This phrase in Philippians 4, 5, that the Lord is near, this is where joy lives. It's not in the pain itself, as if the suffering, we have to somehow make it good. But it's because we are united with Christ through our sufferings, who's already promised that he'll make good out of it. Okay, it's because we're not alone. And the one who's with us knows our suffering. He knows it in the way that he experienced it too. The anxiety, the grief, the fears of your lives, he has experienced that too. And he still draws near. He still draws near to you and to your pain. That Jesus willingly enters into our suffering tells me that he can handle it. He's not uncomfortable when we're angry, when we're hurt. He doesn't despise our pain or shame or condemn us. He asks us to just give it to him because he's already there waiting to catch it. Right? And so this is where we find relief and hope and contentment in suffering. It's because of who Jesus is and how he draws near. K.J. Ramsey, a therapist who writes about her own experiences of trauma and chronic illness, says this is grace, that God joined us on the floor of this earth in the person of Jesus and forever changed the abyss into a portal. He takes our abyss and turns it into a portal that is straight into the arms of our loving Father. So when we are present to our pain, 
and we experience Christ's presence with us in it, that is when we are freed to become present to joy. And that is what Paul's offering us here in Philippians 4. Okay, it's not a denial of our anxiety or other legitimate emotions. It's a pathway through it. Practices that allow us to move through the pain to the other side where redemption and joy are promised to be waiting. These are practices that engage our heart and our mind, our emotions and our mental selves. So let's look at those. Let's look at the next part of verse six where we begin to turn our eyes towards goodness. Verse six, in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God and that's how we receive peace. Okay, number one, we vent to God. That's how Tim Mackey puts it. We vent to God. We present him our needs and we give him thanks. Venting to God is the sitting with your pain part. It's where we're honest in our prayers, knowing that God doesn't ask for a sanitized version. He's not uncomfortable with your pain. He can handle it. And often going back to the tone that we read these verses through, different experiences we've had in our life, different messages we've received may lead us to worry, consciously or not, that God will abandon us, shame us, ridicule us, condemn us, that he'll be disappointed in us, annoyed with us, fed up with our negative emotions, but God does not despise our pain. He asks us to be honest time and time again through his word, he asks us to come to him in honesty. We see this through the Psalms with some brutally honest prayers. We see this in Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane and God doesn't turn us away. He wants to hear it, all of it, the whole spectrum when we're in the place that feels good, when we're in the middle, just kind of coasting, and when we're in the depths of despair, he wants it all. And really, friends, when we avoid bringing it to him, we're turning Jesus away from the very thing that he came here for. So, so we learn to open ourselves to him. And sometimes that looks like taking baby steps, right? If we are not very familiar with this process, if we're not very comfortable with that, even if we are and it's just so unpleasant, sometimes we just need to take that first step. And what's that first step towards venting your cares to God? And then after we vented it all out, we present our needs. We ask God for what we want and very simply what we truly want. He doesn't ask for our pretend desires. He asks for our real needs. And last, we give it to him with thanks. Emotion researchers studying the concept of joy speak to this reinforcing feedback loop between gratitude and joy, something they call an upward spiral. When we practice gratitude, they say, it keeps us aware of the ways that our life really is meaningful and beautiful, the small things um, that are worth celebrating. And when we do that, that swells in us a subjective feeling of joy. And when we subjectively feel joyful, we're more likely to notice the small pleasures in our life and then feel moved towards gratitude. And so we see that gratitude promotes joy and joy then promotes gratitude. And so this is the path that Paul offers us to honestly move through our pain and our sense of joy. Vent to God, being present to your reality. Present your needs to him and give him thanks, beginning to turn your eyes to the goodness and the joy that's already around you. Then Paul continues in verse eight, offering examples of what to focus our minds on if we want to receive God's peace and joy. He says, whatever is true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, praiseworthy, think about these things. And the things that you've seen me and others and ultimately Jesus do, you do it too. 
put it into practice. So after we move through the pain, or even as we move through it, the exhortation here is that now we can authentically turn our eyes, not as a bypass, but an authentic like opening of our eyes to see that which is good all around us. From a neurobiological perspective, whenever, whatever we meditate on signals the brain to make a series of small changes that will form or reinforce pathways in our brain that make us more prone to notice that thing again in the future and, and to believe what it is that we're focusing on. Okay, it's this meditative focusing that makes it more real to us. And if I had another hour and a half, I'd spend the whole time talking about this because it's my very favoritest thing. But I'll leave it at that for now. If you've been sanctuary, around sanctuary for a while, you've heard Andrew quote Richard Rohr as he says that we can't think our way into new ways of living, but we act our way into new ways of thinking. And so even as Paul says, think about these things in Paul 9, what he's actually inviting us into is a practice an action of turning our eyes to see the goodness that's before us. Some, some uh, authors have called this practice beauty hunting, actively looking for beauty, especially in simple things. And KJ Ramsey again says it really beautifully. She says, when we stop rejecting our lives, this might be on the screen, might not, that's fine. But when we stopped rejecting our lives by spending all of our energy on seeking rescue, we actually have energy left to taste and see the goodness that is here. We find God's love in the small crevices of a life slowed and shattered by suffering. We sense God sustaining grace in the scent of the rosemary we just passed, noticing its bloom for the first time and breathing a sigh of relief after working hard all day. We can hold each moment, the beautiful and the brutal, and squeeze it like an orange for all its juice. We spend so much time seeking rescue and missing goodness but as we've already sung today, surely goodness and mercy are following us when we dwell in the house of the Lord. And the question here is, are we looking? We can open our eyes. I invite you to open your eyes to see the goodness and the mercy that are chasing after you because God promises it's there. So reflect on that. What are those small glimmers of beauty and goodness for me? We're going to end here. And before we end, I wonder if some of you might be wondering, how does this actually lead to joy? Okay, we're talking about sitting in our suffering, being present to reality, then being present to goodness. We're to be a people marked by joy, and we're talking about joy. So what even is joy? Every emotional experience that we have, every emotion that we have is comprised of three things. An experience or event, something happened, the story we tell ourselves about that experience, and then a physiological response. Something happens in our body in response to it. And so what, what psychologists believe largely is that our emotions are less dictated by the events in our lives and more by the stories that we tell ourselves about it. And largely these stories are automatic. They're filtered through our experiences until we learn to change the story. According to some recent findings, a core component in the stories that we tell that will predictably lead us to feeling joy is when we encounter an experience and it in our minds, the story we tell is that it is good because it indicates some kind of redemptive, redemptive twist where something good follows on the heels of something bad. 
In other words, we're most likely to experience joy when we believe that good is coming. It's this hope. It's hope, the embodied knowledge that there is more beyond the pain. That's what ignites our joy, even when things are not good now. And when we've cleared our obstacles, any, any blocking or bypassing we've done, when we've cleared that, we can look straight forward into the hope that the Lord has set before us. Hope tells us that suffering is not all that there is. And what that hope offers to me very practically when I'm feeling discouraged or disappointed or rejected or hurt is it offers me the courage to face that darkness because I know my comforter goes with me and I know I don't have to stay there forever. The darkness is not my whole story and it's not the end of the story. When I was asked to preach this sermon, I was actually on vacation in Northern Maine, and we we're staying at this beautiful Airbnb right on the coast. So excited to just be there and take in all the beauty of that view. And if we can put, if, I have a couple pictures, if it works, we can put the first picture up. We get there and the entire week, everything was covered in fog. So it's, it's maybe a little hard to see here, but like we're looking out on this deck and it's like you just saw this wall of white in front of us, this flat sort of 2D eerie block. And so I've been to Maine before, so I knew that likely there was a lot beyond that fog that would be really beautiful to take in. I knew that there's probably like islands and rocks and groves and things like that just beyond the fog. I couldn't see them. I hadn't been to this particular view before, but because of my experience, I knew they were there. And so I experienced some disappointment while on vacation in this beautiful break from work. Some disappointment that, man, like I was really looking forward to seeing that. But, but also the knowledge that there's probably something more out there gave me hope that, hey, maybe we'll see it. Maybe we'll see it while we're here. And so what I found is that knowledge liberated me to really see and rejoice in the beauty that was before me to take in these gorgeous pines, to breathe in the fresh air, to hear the sounds of the water and know that my work has been set aside for now and I can rest in that. And it liberated me to rejoice in the beauty that was before me, even as I longed for the beauty that was beyond. And so amazingly, at the end of the week, the, literally the last day in the afternoon, the fog lifted for a few hours and we can put the next picture on the screen. And I wish you could have been there to see how drastic this difference really was, but it was incredible. It was beautiful. It was better than I'd imagined it would be. And so what I want to share with you today is that when I have come across suffering in my life, from the daily groans of life in a broken world to larger traumas that I faced, what has brought me through each time has been the knowledge that I have experienced God's deliverance his promise, and truly, even when I didn't see those things, his presence with me. Those liminal moments in my youth where I felt God tangibly with me. And it was drawing on those experiences, drawing on the experiences of others and their stories of deliverance that helped me to know in my body that I'm not abandoned now. I'm still learning to feel the fullness of pain, grief, frustration, doubt, bitterness, and more to come. And in this learning, I've learned that God is big enough to handle these feelings and that two things can be true. We can sincerely and honestly feel these things and still know 
that redemption and restoration are crouching on the other side, just waiting to burst forth. And it's in this tension that joy lives. Okay, joy abides in the midst of, not in place of our disappointments and our hopes. Sometimes we experience restoration in this lifetime and sometimes we don't. But we, when we know that there's more out there, more beyond the fog, when we can trust God's promises, when our hope is truly the anchor for our souls, like it says in Hebrews 6, 19, we can not only endure much, but we can rejoice deeply. We can rejoice deeply, friends. We can grieve the pain without despair. We can find the goodness along the way, even as we yearn for the goodness that is yet to come. And so this is the Christian hope. It's a confident expectation that God has got you and whatever you're going through doesn't have to have the last word. And when we trust this, it will lead us, friends, to rejoicing, to celebrating, to worship and to joy. So as we close, I just wanna invite you to check in with yourself right now. Where's your heart at? And a good litmus test might be, what was I feeling? What was my heart like during worship earlier? Was I connecting with and feeling the fullness of joy as I sang about rejoicing in the Lord and the good plans he has for me? Or was I just kind of saying the words, sitting in the darkness and despair or really just kind of just disconnected and checked out and entirely? And if the first, if you were feeling the joy, that goodness and mercy following you, praise the Lord. Take this time to share it with him. He wants to hear it. He really does. If you were singing deserts and gardens and you resonated more with being in the desert, if you were feeling the weight of pain that feels heavy or you were just disconnected, I want you to imagine what might it look like to experience Christ with you right now, right next to you. Like close your eyes and imagine it. What does he look like? What's the look on his face? What's his posture towards you? What words does he say? First Peter 5, 6 through 7 says to cast our anxieties on him. So let us consider what it might look like to cast your particular anxieties on him, to cast it all knowing that he wants to hear it. He wants all of it. He wants all of you. So let's come church. Father, as we close this morning, I just, I want mostly to thank you for being with us, for being the God of the deserts and the gardens, for walking through all of it with us. We are never left alone. And so I pray, Jesus, that you would teach us to sit in the garden of Gethsemane, as you did, to be present to the reality that you've put before us and to know in our bones that we are not alone. Jesus, teach us to sit in the garden and then teach us to turn our eyes towards joy. Teach us to sit in the garden, Lord. I pray all of these things in Jesus' name, amen.